Hello, education advocates, and welcome to Statehouse Spotlights, your go-to podcast for the latest education news happening across the country. I'm Tom Green. And I'm Ashley Mullins. As national legislative directors at Excelinet in Action, we lead our legislative affairs team where we collaborate with leaders and policymakers across the country to champion student-centered K-12 education policy. Each week on our podcast, our team is tracking education bills and we're sharing trends with you from the states. And as we celebrate National School Choice Week, we're covering a big shift happening across the country. From public charter schools to homeschooling, micro schools to innovative private education choice programs, a record number of states adopted or expanded school choice last year. If you found this podcast, you probably understand the term school choice, but it never hurts to reaffirm what it means. Ashley, can you help us define the term? Sure. At its core, school choice gives families more options to match their children with the right learning environment for them. In 2023, we saw a boom of states leveling the playing field with fair funding for public charter school students, as well as universal expansions of school choice programs like education scholarship accounts, which you'll hear us call ESAs. Later in this episode, we're going to talk more about legislation that's being introduced and discussed across the country to expand school choice options for families. But first, we wanted to take a look back at this past week and the bill movement in some states outside of school choice. So we'll start with Indiana. Indiana Senate Bill 1, we talked about that last week, awaits a hearing in Senate Appropriations Committee. This legislation would strengthen their existing early literacy law. As we discussed last week, it requires summer school for students who are still behind in grades two and three. It sets a clear line in the sand that says, if you're not proficient in reading on grade level at the end of third grade, you can't be promoted to the fourth grade. It gives kids more time for promotion. It allows more time for interventions and supports to ensure that students are ready. You know, the mountain is much steeper to climb academically if you're unable to read at the end of third grade. So what Indiana is doing is giving kids more time to catch up. I think that's really important. And it's a key ingredient to the success other states have seen in this policy area. We also hear pushback to give kids more time for promotion in third grade because it could harm their self-esteem. But I think we would argue that their self-esteem is improved when they're able to read. And they're better prepared for the next grade because we know the academics get more challenging year after year. I was going to say the same thing, Tom. You know, if kids can't read, the issues show up in performance, in classroom behavior, and we don't want these kids to drop out. So I'm with you there. Yeah. And, you know, I taught high school and there would be times where I would get a student who struggled to read. I was not equipped to teach reading. I was trying to teach civics, economics, history, and, you know, we advocate for teachers to learn the science of reading, to be able to help kids decode words. I just didn't have that background knowledge or those skills, nor the time, you know, teaching high schoolers. It's just, it's much more challenging. So Indiana deserves a lot of credit for strengthening this policy. It is difficult, especially in implementation, when kids start to be retained in third grade, you get a lot of pushback, but we know in the long run it works. Also, another bill uh, or a set of bills we're engaged on in Virginia, Senate Bill 563 and House Bill 1087, both strengthen dual enrollment opportunities for students. This means students attending high school can also enroll in post-secondary courses. So it helps them get a jump start 
on their pathway to college and or career. And it not only accelerates learning, but it better prepares students for what's next. It gets them more engaged. It makes their learning more practical. And I think it gives students more purpose. They actually see like, gosh, what I'm doing here in high school is actually going to lead to a job. HB 1087 also strengthens the state's data systems to better reflect how well Virginia's K-12 system is preparing students for the workforce. You know, are the programs that they're funding producing prepared students or not? I think that information is valuable to policymakers who can better budget and make programmatic decisions. And these bills were just introduced. And gosh, Virginia has such a fast legislative session, 60 days. So so fast. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like their House Education Committee is meeting, you know, twice a week right now. They're moving bills quickly. So we're going to start to see these bills move pretty fast there. Oh, that's great. You know, Ashley, we talked last week about smartphone use in schools, you know, and how states are working through that. We saw states are banning smartphones during instructional time, or they're providing grants to local school districts who develop their own smartphone ban policy. This week, we're starting to see bills pop up around artificial intelligence in Tennessee, Florida, Mississippi, and Kentucky. This is incredibly important because this is the new frontier, and it's a little scary. It's, uh, you know, uncertain, but it could be a really powerful tool to help students. And not only are legislative sessions getting off to a really, really quick start and bills are starting to move, but we're also hearing from governors across the country about their agenda items here at the beginning of the year, either in their state of the state addresses or their budget proposals. I know we teased Governor Healy's announcement in Massachusetts on last week's episode, and I'm really pleased to share that early literacy was indeed the star of her speech. She is proposing $30 million this year and recurring funding in the out years to ensure that teachers are trained in the science of reading and that schools can have some support in switching to high quality instructional materials, which I'm really excited about. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham also made literacy a priority in her speech last week. And so it's great to see this. It's really catching fire across the country. And it doesn't matter the little letter after these leaders' names, right? Everyone is seeing the light on literacy and starting to make moves to fix it. And I'll put a quick plug in for our listeners. We'll dive deeper into literacy on next week's episode. So make sure you tune in if this policy interests you. It's really incredible to see the momentum. And I know we talked about this before, but To have Republicans and Democrats embracing comprehensive early literacy policies that, you know, initially championed by our chairman, Governor Bush, back in 2002, really take off and spread across the country. And I think this also, you know, as we see policy movement, I think this puts a greater emphasis on implementation support. And I'm, you know, I'm proud that, you know, Excel and Ed, Excel and Ed in action, we we like to support implementation. So I think there's going to be a lot of work to do after these policies get through the legislature and signed by governors on both parties. That's so right, Tom. All right, before we move on to our school choice segment, here's where I give our obligatory call for all of you listeners to hit the subscribe button. That way you'll be notified each week when our new episodes come out. And we'll continue to update you on all of these and other education legislation that we see introduced across the states. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get into what's happening now and what could be on the horizon for choice in 2024. Yeah. So last year, we saw incredible growth for private school choice programs in the states. Eight states joined Arizona and West Virginia in adopting universal or near universal programs. 
And a little bit of trivia, because my current home state of Nevada doesn't get credit here, but Nevada was actually the first state in the nation to pass a universal ESA back in 2015. So, But they were missing a key ingredient, weren't they, Tom? They were. They were. The Supreme Court of the state ruled that the funding mechanism for the universal ESA was unconstitutional. Uh, there's a provision in Nevada's constitution where certain votes had to get two-thirds majority, and the Supreme Court ruled that the funding mechanism created was unconstitutional. But the conversation here in Nevada continues. There's the Opportunity Scholarship Program for low-income kids to to get a scholarship to go to a private school. It's been a struggle in Carson City to to protect that program, but we're hopeful under the leadership of uh, Governor Lombardo that we'll see that program grow in the future. But Last year, eight states went universal, near universal. That's incredible. Florida, you know, being a school choice leader um, for decades, made its already robust ESA program universal, making 3.1 million students eligible. Indiana, Ohio, North Carolina expanded their voucher programs universally or near universal. Oklahoma, they created an interesting concept. It's the nation's First universal refundable tax credit, which allows private school and homeschool families to be reimbursed for educational expenses when they do their taxes each year. And so this is a different take on a traditional ESA program where you have an administrator and, you know, reimbursements or, you know, digital wallets created. This basically just allows parents to get refunds on their taxes each year and claim those educational expenses during that time. And then Arkansas, Iowa, and Utah created brand new programs that also allow for universal eligibility with an initial phase-in approach or funding caps. The growth really just continues. I feel like the boom really started in 2021 and just keeps going. What do you think keeps propelling these states, you know, a couple of years down the road? Is it competition with other states? I think that's part of it. I mean, you know, you hear it too, Ashley, where leaders are interested in what their neighbors are doing or yep. what what's what states who are known as national leaders are doing. I think that's part of it. I think one good thing that we could pull from the pandemic is, you know, parents looking for different options, which actually has moved policy forward and has shifted our politics in this country where it's made school choice more mainstream and just more, I think people are more aware that, gosh, there's other options outside of my traditional public school. And when parents get curious and they find out if their state allows it or not, if there are limits, they get active, they get mobilized. They want to advocate at state capital because, you know, education is so important. It's so important to to kids. They, they, you know, they only have a limited amount of time to build their foundation. So they're prepared for today's economy. So. Yep. And Tom, to that note, I was just at the Pennsylvania state capital this morning for a National School Choice Week gathering and rally on the Capitol steps, right? And that's exactly what it was about. Parents and students from some charter schools and private school options gathered to just thank lawmakers for what we do have, but also continue to urge them to keep pushing the envelope because we are definitely falling behind here in my home state. But on the charter school front, these public options also continue to grapple with unequal funding and unfair treatment compared to traditional public school counterparts in a in a bunch of states, despite being really, really popular with families. Um, the sector has grown to more than 7,800 institutions across dozens of states. 
Charter schools serve roughly 3.7 million students across the country. Uh, but that said, charter schools in 24 states are still receiving only 81 cents on the dollar for every public school dollar. And that ends up being about $2,900 less per charter school student. And so we need to continue to advocate for equal treatment of our public schools. Last year, though, we did see some huge strides towards equal funding for charter schools. And I want to highlight a few of those states. Arkansas and Idaho both launched loan programs that will aid charter schools in securing facilities, which is big. Florida mandated fair revenue sharing, granting $56 million to 700 charter schools across that state. Indiana is now ensuring proportional distribution of property tax and referenda dollars across four of the counties that serve 80% of charter school students in that state. North Carolina empowered counties to allocate property taxes for charter school capital needs. Ohio's budget went really big on charter school funding. They allocated $136 million more in per pupil funding. And then they also put $175 million in for charter school facilities, which marks a huge commitment in that state to address funding disparities. And giving those facility dollars to charter schools also helps free up operational dollars, which we're excited to see. And then I also want to highlight Tom Nevada. Uh, also made $100 million available to charter schools through the state's infrastructure bank and outside funding to set up a revolving loan fund for charter schools there. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Governor Lombardo for uh, his leadership to make that happen. It's definitely needed here, and it's a big investment. So, Ashley, why do you think there's such a disparity between public schools, traditional and then charter? You know, it's Interesting to see the disparities in funding and the ongoing conversations about this at the state level, right? It is hard for legislators to fight back against the status quo. And by status quo, I mean our traditional public schools, right? Even though the students who are choosing charter schools, they are choosing a public education option, you know, some traditional public schools still view state funding as you know, money that is specifically meant for them and not meant to follow students to other public school options. We run into this in my home state of Pennsylvania and in many other states. The funding mechanisms really do contribute to this. If you have pass-through funding whereby your education funding goes to your local public schools and then it has to be forwarded on to charter schools, which is something we see across several states, that that's a pain point. Um, and so convincing our legislators to fix those inequities. It's been a long haul, but I know that we're going to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's natural, right? Like you have the traditional public school system, you know, advocating at the state capitol for their budget. And, yeah. and just like you said, they feel like it's theirs. And I think we're starting to see a shift where we start thinking about our kids, you know, our, our students in a state, they just have a diverse learning needs. And one school typically can't cater to all those unique learning needs and kids should have that freedom. And charter schools provide such a great option to meet kids' needs that maybe aren't being met in another system. So um, I'm hopeful as we start to see these disparities lessen that, you know, that won't be such an issue in the future and it doesn't have to be such a political battle at the Capitol. But, you know, as state legislators are underway, there's some school choice bills that are being considered currently. As of this recording, um, here are some states that are advancing school choice now. So Florida, Representative Tom Cow is sponsoring legislation, House Bill 1403, to make some cleanup tweaks to the state's ESA program. 
and also merged the state's Hope Scholarship Program, a scholarship program for bullied students to go to a private school of their choice. They're going to merge that with the largest in the country tax credit scholarship program there in Florida. Kentucky is considering a constitutional amendment to uh, allow for public funds to create an ESA program in that state. Missouri is working to expand charter schools, establish a parent's bill of rights, and they're considering legislation to establish a tax credit for qualified educational expenses for private or homeschooled students. New Hampshire House Education Committee held a hearing on several bills recently to expand the state's education freedom accounts. And then in South Carolina, Governor Henry McMaster unveiled his executive budget, which includes $30 million for the state's ESA program. So a lot of good news there. Yeah, we're excited to see how those things advance through this legislative session. We'll definitely keep you posted on them on our weekly podcast here. But I also want to just talk about the future of school choice. I think at last count, I looked this morning, we have about 24 governors who have issued proclamations about National School Choice Week as we celebrate across the country this week. So why don't we talk about which governors have made visionary statements to bring those expansive choice programs to their states in the next year or two? Tom, I think I saw something from Alabama. Want to start there? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Governor Kay Ivey, she is a strong education advocate, and she believes that the way you can move an education system forward is by tackling it from multiple angles. It's an approach that we advocate for. There's not a silver bullet in education. You know, you pass this one law and it's going to fix everything in education. There are multiple ways to look at this. And I think, Ashley, you talked about this in a previous episode is kind of our approach of, you know, what are policies and programs that can support and enhance and uh, improve the current system? What are policies that we can create like school choice to create options outside of the current traditional system? And then how can we think about everything innovatively and just really think outside the box to come up with brand new ideas that um, that are that are new and innovative and cutting edge. So, you know, in Alabama, Governor Ivey, she's been an advocate for early literacy. She's been an advocate for accountability. She's been an advocate for math policy. And she recently said she wants to make Alabama the most school choice friendly state in the nation. Can't get clearer than that. So I think she has her eyes set on an ESA program that could be open to all students. There's going to be some discussions about that, but really good news there in Alabama. Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp, he is strongly urging the Georgia legislature to pass a school choice program. He said that in his state of the state. You know, he said, I firmly believe we can take an all of the above approach to education, whether it's public, private, homeschooling, charter, or otherwise. That's a strong statement. I think it's important for governors to set the tone. And Governor Kemp certainly has set the tone in the state of Georgia. They've been having this discussion year after year. And and I think he's told the legislature, this is the year to get it done. Also, looking at Louisiana, talk about governors. Governor Jeff Landry campaigned on school choice. Um, I think it's important, you know, that's kind of become an emerging issue for leaders as they campaign for office to mention school choice. So I think that's a good thing. He said parents should be empowered to decide how their child can best achieve their fullest academic potential because parents are the most important voice in a child's education. I anticipate Louisiana to have a big and bold school choice proposal soon. Their session starts in March. 
Also in Mississippi. I mean, Mississippi gets a lot of national attention based on their academic results. You look at their early literacy program and the results from that. They have one of the strongest accountability systems in the country. We point to Mississippi's school accountability calculation and, and A through F school letter grading system as a model for the country. And, and they're really taking a big step in college and career pathways and doing those return on investment analysis of their current system. Are they producing workforce programs aligned with what their state businesses need? So Mississippi's been a leader in a lot of areas, but one area there's been kind of a struggle around private school choice programs. And Governor Reeves, who's been a longtime school choice advocate, you know, he said, we've seen tremendous progress when it comes to educational achievement levels in, in our state. And the obvious next step is more school choice. And we couldn't agree more. And then, you know, looking at another state, I think that we should recognize is Tennessee. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee, he announced that he'd like to make ESAs or Education Freedom Scholarship accounts in his state universal. Currently, you have ESA programs in three counties where Memphis is based, where Nashville is based, and where Chattanooga is based. But he wants to ensure that everyone across Tennessee in the volunteer state have ESAs and access to different options. He's made strong statements. He had a big press conference with Governor Huckabee Sanders from Arkansas touting his proposal. And then to round us out and looking at gubernatorial leadership in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott, he's been such a strong advocate for passing ESAs in the state of Texas so that you have more than 5.5 million students eligible for an ESA. He has been campaigning I mean, he's been doing town halls and events, and this past year just just went all in to ensure that all Texas families have access to a school that best fits their kids' needs. And he's not letting up. He's now campaigning in primaries against legislators who are opponents of school choice. So it's going to be interesting to see how the state moves forward. They have a primary in March. And so we know that the governor's all in and he's been a big advocate and he says parents and their children deserve no less. So we are in full support of Governor Abbott and we're excited to see the second biggest state in our country potentially pass school choice legislation. Yeah, that would be huge. We are definitely rooting for the kids of Texas and hope they can get it done. You know what I love about these states as we look at them, though, is something you mentioned earlier, Tom. All of these governors and all of these states are really taking an all-of-the-above approach. I know I've said this before, right? This does not have to be an either-or discussion about choice. We know that all kids deserve the best education possible, whether that's in our traditional public system or whether it's something else, right? And so I love that these governors are taking really a holistic approach to education policy, and I'm excited to see how that plays out for their kids. I also just, you know, I said at the at the start of this segment, we have about 24 governors who have issued proclamations this week, but I'm not hearing 24 governors, you know, making big, bold statements about their visions. What do you make of that, Tom? You know, I think that because school choice is all of the above, there are some choices that I think are more palatable politically in some states. So if you're expanding public school choice or creating virtual school opportunities, yep. those can be less controversial. And I think that's taken time, you know, because again, we're we're moving away from the traditional public school system. And when you move away from the traditional system, now we're, we're not saying the traditional system is not important, you know, it, it is incredibly important. 
but it's also important to have other options. And I think in our country, we've seen this movement to create more options and you get resistance from the current system. And I think some states, it's more politically advantageous to protect the system and maybe support some public school choice, but private school choice is just a step too far. But when you look at polling, we see voters across the political spectrum supportive of parental choice and creating more options. So while the politics might not reflect the will of the country, I mean, we're seeing that in a lot of Republican states, a lot of Republican governors taking this on and advocating for it. I think our hope is that Democratic governors will also do that. And they'll also, in the future, advocate for more options because that's that's where the American people are. You look at any poll, the American people, no matter their background or political affiliation, they support school choice. Yeah, I think the moral of the story here related to school choice and and maybe, you know, a lot of other education policies too is progress is incremental. Not all states are going to go zero to 100 on a universal choice program like what West Virginia did. Plus, they added in public charters all within a two-year time span going from zero choices to, to multiple programs. But But that's not what we see across the country. And so I think the hope is, right, that some of this takes hold in states and then they just continue to grow these types of programs to meet the needs of their constituents and students across those states. Well, there you have it. As we wrap up this episode of State House Spotlights, we want to thank you for joining us in this deep discussion on how states are empowering families with educational freedom and how others are looking to follow suit. If you liked today's episode, please share your opinions with us on social media using the hashtag Statehouse Spotlights. You can engage with our team at Excel and at an action on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and X. Please go ahead and give this podcast a review and subscribe so you're always the first to know about our new episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in and happy School Choice Week. <laughs>